Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read the first 16 verses in Genesis chapter 4. Before we do that, uh, the elephant in the room is, in fact, COVID-19. We recognize that there are things that are happening in our world that are outside of of our control. Um, And if you're on our email list, you received an email from us this week. We want to acknowledge openly that God is sovereign over even COVID-19, over whatever is taking place and transpiring in, in our world around us. Uh, At the same time, we want to be those, we want to be a congregation who's a beacon of light in our community as those who are an exhibit, love for neighbor, regardless of the situation or circumstance. And so in that email, you saw that there are several steps that we're just asking you all to take uh, as we gather together. And regardless of what things might look like in the next few days or even upcoming weeks, we'll stay in touch via email and via social media and via phone, and however else we may need to, to contact you. But the reality is that that love for neighbor in this time looks like, might look very different than it has in, in the past few weeks. And so we want to be open to the fact that God has given us opportunities as believers, as those who are followers of Christ, to share the good news of gospel, to share the hope of Jesus Christ uh, to those who have none, who are living lives of of fear and who are anxious as a result of what's going on and transpiring in the world around us. And we want to be people who are, who are open to being aware of the fact that, that things are real and they threaten us. Um, but the final enemy, death, has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And again, we want to be good neighbors. We want to love our neighbor by washing our hands. We want to love our neighbor by, by keeping safe distances. We want to love our neighbor by... Uh, 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 taking into account the things that our, our uh, community leaders are suggesting to us. And, uh, and we want to love our neighbor, maybe most of all, by not expressing our opinion so openly as maybe we are sometimes are prone to. Um, I think what Blaze read a few minutes ago always strikes me in situations like this, although this one is a bit unprecedented. But where Paul writes in Romans 10 or 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. We're going to be a congregation that outdoes one another in showing honor in the midst of, of an uncertain world. With that said, let's go to Genesis chapter 4. This is where we'll be. Let me read this text for us. Genesis chapter 4. Again, the first 16 verses is what I will highlight this morning. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you, who are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is great, greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord God said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. We're all worshipers. We're designed that way. We're always worshiping something. And I want to unpack for you maybe what I mean by that throughout our time together. When we think about worship, we oftentimes just think about religious practices, or we think about singing on a Sunday morning, or we just think about the Sunday morning gathering. But worship is a lot more than that. And I want to argue to you this morning that Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is a passage about worship. It's maybe the first passage, although there are hints of it in the first three chapters of Genesis. It's maybe the first explicit passage about worship given to us in Scripture. When you worship something, at the most fundamental level, what you're doing is declaring that thing's worth. You are saying, this thing has worth for me. That's what worship is. And because of the worth of the thing that you're worshiping has, you begin to order your life around or orient your life towards that thing. This is the definition that we've used for worship in the past. Ordering our lives, uh, specifically talking about God himself, ordering our lives around or orienting our lives towards God. But other things vie for that. And at every given moment of every given day, we are at some level declaring the worth of something or someone, and oftentimes that someone is us. Say that you are walking in the woods, if there were woods here, in a field. Let's, let's go with a field. And you're walking home, and you have a long ways to go. Now, this doesn't happen. We usually drive. But if you're walking in a field, and you're walking home, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and you're cold, and home is north of whatever position that you are, and you have a compass, you look at the compass, and you determine which way is north, and you begin walking in that direction. You begin walking towards home, which is represented by north on your compass. Every step that you take towards home, every movement that you make north towards home is declaring home's worth. It's saying that is what is worthy of my attention and my orientation, my direction in this moment. The thing that is most worthy of my direction right now is a hot meal and a warm bed. And it is an act of worship to move that direction. That's what I want to tell you that this passage this morning is about. If home was of little consequence to you, your direction wouldn't be purposeful. 
You would zig and you would zag. You may go east, you may go west, you may go the opposite direction, south. And if you were headed south and you told me that home was north and that home was the most important thing to you, I would probably be confused. I'm trying to get home. I'm headed in the opposite direction. I would say, home isn't worth anything to you. Whatever is south is where you are directed and the way that you are, or what you are declaring has worth. So this is the way it is with worship. By being a Christian, by being in Christ, by being a person who has received Jesus Christ, who has believed and repented of our sin, being a Christian means that we have been freed from worldly mindsets that value or are declaring the worth of anything other than God. Now, our lives oftentimes do, in fact, declare the worth of something other than God, but but we are freed to direct our lives towards God in a Godward direction more than any other time. What we do indicates what we value. This is a point that we talked about last week. What we do indicates what we value and the direction of our lives indicates what we believe. What do we value? What do we value? We think about these things. Do we value work or do we value sex? Do we value money? Do we value material? Do we value our families? Do we value ourselves? None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but if your life is declaring that those are of utmost importance, if your life is declaring those are of utmost worth, if those things are, are, are you're saying this is north on my compass, then we can find ourselves quickly out of calibration. And we make north, when we make them north on our compass, we begin demonstrating that what we value is not God, but something else. Again, we are always worshiping something. And so the question as we come to this text in Genesis chapter 4 is, what is the direction of your life? What is north on your compass? What are you aiming at? What do you value? What is of worth? I think we should need to ask ourselves that question this week. What is the thing that I'm always talking about, thinking about, working towards? Again, that is what you're declaring has worth. That is what you value. It is, in fact, what you worship. So look with me at the first five verses in Genesis chapter 4, particularly verse 3. This is where we're going to derive uh, this idea. What we see here is Cain and Abel, a story that's familiar to us, a story that is not something that if we've been in church, we've heard of Cain and Abel. It's often a, a Bible story that's referenced in popular culture pretty regularly. Worship here, though, that is acceptable is what we see, and also an example of worship that is unacceptable. Look at verses 3 and 4. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, verse 4, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, when Moses writes, in the course of time, we don't exactly know what that is. I'm not sure if this means that there were seasons or a harvest time that came about, um, but maybe uh, after a season. I'm, we're not told if this is the first time they're making an offering or if this is a regular occurrence. 
What we do see, though, is that Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, as you see that they're both bringing an offering, but only one is accepted. That second half of verse 4 is very telling because what we see here is that Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. God has regard for Abel's offering, we're then told, but not for Cain's. And the immediate question is why? The immediate question is why? And some have suggested that it's the offering type itself, right? That uh, something from the ground isn't as or isn't worth as much to God as, as a blood sacrifice. But the reality is that in the Old Testament, we see that both sacrifices in the sacrificial system, in Leviticus, both sacrifices are acceptable. God gives uh, um, a, a way for those who cannot afford a blood sacrifice to bring a grain sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. That explanation misses the mark, therefore, disproved by Leviticus. So the answer to why was Abel's offering regarded while Cain's was not, the answer is found in that simple clue, the word firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Abel bought the best of what he had. Cain did not think to bring the best. He may have even brought the leftovers. This is what God means when he says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Look at that with me. Verse 7, God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now that should be a bit of a jarring language. He doesn't say, if you do well, your offering will be accepted. But he says, if you do well, you will be accepted. God ties Cain's act of worship to Cain's acceptance by him. I think that should catch our attention. I think that should catch our attention dramatically. It indicates to us that God isn't looking at the outward. He's not looking at the physical composition of the sacrifice or the worship. God is looking internally at the motives of the heart. And he looks internally at the motives of Cain's heart. And he looks internally at the, the motives of Abel's heart. And he sees two very different things. And one offering is accepted and one is not. So this passage is indicating clearly to us that Abel's, he is the proper example of worship. Cain is not. What are the implications of this? I think there are two things here that we can unpack from these few verses. Two things, and I'm sure there are more, but these two things come into clear focus, I think, for us. First, first thing, Abel acted in faith. Now, we don't see again that word used here specifically, but we do know that the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abel brings his offering by faith. And so he gives us a bit of helpful interpretation here. Hebrews 11 chapter 4 tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith. 
through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. Now, remember last week when we talked about faith, we talked about faith is rooted in God's promises contained in God's word. It's not this flimsy, unattached thing, but something that is very, very clearly given to us in Scripture. It's putting our trust in a future orientation of the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to us in His Word. There are many promises given to us in God's Word, and to have faith means to look at those and say, they are certain, they are sure, I am assured of these things. And then faith takes action, as Abel's faith took action. A motive of the heart that was pleasing to God and an acceptable sacrifice. The motive of the heart meant that Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable. Abel's sacrifice demonstrates faith because it acts on God's promise that God is the one who cares for his children. Abel brings his best and he brings his first, firstborn fat portions. These are the best pieces of what Abel has to offer. I want to argue with you that in ancient times, to bring the first and the best required a whole lot more faith than it might even in our time. This is substantial sacrifice that Abel is making. And we're talking about there's like four people on the earth right now. There's not a lot of people. There's not a grocery store to go to. There's nothing around him to to go to. It was the fruit of their labor. And so to take the fruit of your labor, which may yield not very much because of the curse that has been given in in Genesis chapter 3, is a dramatic act of faith. To bring the first and the best, there might not be a whole lot left over. If I give away my first and best portion, the question for someone in an ancient society, when there's four people on the earth, or in any ancient society that grows up and springs up after this time, if if I am in a position where I'm giving away my first and my best, we have to ask the question, what does the second look like? What do the leftovers look like? What if after we were done here today, you pulled up your online banking app and you saw that there was only $20 left? You have to feed your family, your kids, your spouse. You need to feed the dog. All of those people need to eat and you're responsible for them. So what then? Would you give away $2 immediately? Would you give away three or four or five or six or half? Would you give away $10? Maybe. But what would drive you to give away some, if not most, of that last $20 in your bank account that you knew wouldn't be replenished until next week? What would drive you to do that? For Abel, he acted in faith and gave the best portion away immediately. For Cain, he said, I'll wait and see if it looks like there will be something left over at the end of the week. And Abel's sacrifice then is an act of faith. 
Because it says, if I give this away, there may not be enough left over for me. But I believe that God will take care of me. Cain's sacrifice was faithless because it failed to believe that God would provide for his needs. So that's the first thing that we see here, that Abel's sacrifice came through faith. The second is that Abel acted on God's terms, not his own. Abel acted on God's terms, not his own. This is important to note. Cain acted on his own terms, but Abel acted on God's. Again, not in what they brought, but in the way that they brought it. We ask Abel and Cain, uh, which is an act of worship? Well, the text clearly shows us that. Abel's sacrifice was an act of worship because it declared the worth of God above the worth of self. That's why Abel's worship His sacrifice is accepted by God because it declares the worth of God and not the worth of self. Cain's sacrifice thought of himself first and God second. Modern Christianity, we don't heed this warning very well at all, if at all. We approach God in our terms, usually. Like God is existing for us. We expect God to spit out some blessings for us like a a vending machine. Well, we go hard after personal pleasures and self-interest. You can see clearly by the way that most Christians treat other Christians in the church. We demand our personal preferences be met in the musical styles, the preaching content, the style and architecture of the building, how welcoming the environment is and how We're willing to berate and belittle our brothers and sisters in Christ to seek our personal preferences. We oftentimes refuse to commit to brothers and sisters in Christ because we already have too many things going on. The problem is that these attitudes of the heart put ourselves at the center and not not God. It says, like Cain, God exists for me and my desires, and my needs, I'll give what's convenient for me, but if it represents an inconvenience, I'll just stay home, or I will I will just bring the leftovers. When we gather together as a church, if having your personal preferences met are at the top of your list, you're not here to worship God, you're here to worship yourself. What do we do then? Friends, what do we do? Because this is the way that we are we are shaped by our culture. We're shaped as these consumers who take and rarely give. We're users first instead of producers. And so when we walk through the doors on a Sunday morning or when we gather together with people in our congregation, We must begin to check our personal preferences at the door. If everything looks the way that that you think it should here, and it doesn't because we're in the middle of painting, If, if everything looks the way that you think it should, then I haven't done my job. Mark hasn't done his job. Everyone here who's serving hasn't done their job. Because we're here to worship God. 
And if something isn't the way that you like it, that's probably healthy. It's not about you liking it. Count it as a blessing because you're being pressed to worship yourself less. And take the next step and worship God despite your preferences not being met. Growth is painful. It's painful. Watching our kids grow seven and five and they're like, my legs hurt, dad. And I'm like, yeah, that's because you're growing or because your brother punched you. But it, those are two separate things. But that happens a lot. Like, my, my legs hurt. My arms hurt. Like, yeah, dude, you're growing quickly. It's painful. That's the same for the church. You may hear the pain of a wrong note during your favorite song. God forbid, I'm sorry. Um, you may, we may sing a song that you don't like. You don't, might not like the vibe of the room. The sermon may bore you to tears, sorry. Or maybe it just doesn't speak to you. But we need a constant reminders and these can either be taken to say, my, my preferences aren't being met. My needs aren't being met. Therefore, I should go somewhere else or shop around a little bit more or to say, this is God pressing me out of my self-worship and into worship of Him. Before we move on from this point, because that could be maybe a little bit discouraging to you, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you by saying this. God's way is the best way. So when Abel and Cain bring their offerings to, to God and, and, and one comes in God's way and the other comes in his own way, it is very clear from this passage that God's way is the best way. I don't, need to, I don't need to argue this further beyond, but I will because we need it. I mentioned it a little bit last week. I really think sometimes that we as Christians look at the world around us and we begin to think to ourselves, man, the world has got it really good. We're operating in some sort of this like limited way that there are just isn't much. I got to give my money to the church. I got to hang out with people who aren't really like me or hard to talk to or awkward. So it's all boring and I wish that I was somewhere else half the time. That's just reapplying the self-focus of the world and putting it on the church. So here's, here's the encouragement and I want this to be like a mental exercise for us as the body of Christ. What would it look like if we believed that God's way was the best way, if self-sacrifice was the best instead of just taking for ourselves? What if caring for the hurting was the best rather than thinking only about our own pain? What if giving freely with no thought of return was best, again, instead of hoarding or being stingy? What if not worrying was the best, like God tells us to in His Word? What if... Relying and resting in Jesus was the best? What if not complaining was the best? But what if looking around and seeing all of the immense blessings that God has given to us, even when they don't look exactly like we want them to, what if looking at those things and saying, these are blessings? What if we believed that God's way was the best as a church? What if we did? What if we walked in here each week at our best, ready to worship God who will never leave us or forsake us, who has our best in mind all of the time, who has promised us all things because he freely and generously gave up Jesus Christ 
His only Son for us. I think part of what we can learn, and oftentimes the way that this passage gets preached, is that we think about it as a giving text. That there's, hey guys, there's a box in the back, drop your tithes and offerings in it. I think we think that it's about cash or check or how we give. Do we tithe off our net or our gross? Do we give off our tax return or do we not? Whatever. But I think that part of this text is, or the whole thing, is that it moves us further than that. It moves us further than that one act a month or every other week or once a week. It's not less than giving financially, but it is a whole lot more. I think that we need to consider that we are to bring everything to God, all that we are, holding nothing back. This is what, I, this is what we can learn here, that Abel, his, his motives, what God saw when he looked internally, was something far greater I think that we need to consider, again, when we walk in these doors on a Sunday morning or whatever gathering of the church that is occurring, that we would come with our best. And I'm talking about like at our best, like our physical, mental, spiritual best. Like what if we walked in here after a good night's sleep? Saturday night to the world and to many of you represents a time to Stay up late and do what we want. Because we don't have to go to work tomorrow, right? We don't have to get up and get ready and go. But what if we saw that the best that we give to our work or to our family throughout the week, what if we reserved a portion of that for the people of God gathered together to worship God? What if we were ready to engage with all of our being and ready to care for others, to meet new people, to build one another up in love? What if we all came to church not operating out of this energy and time deficit that we've all accumulated throughout the course of the week by pursuing our own personal passions? What if we came to church overflowing with readiness To worship God because all of our accounts have been credited all things in Christ Jesus. All of our accounts. If you're in Christ, your account has been credited everything in Christ Jesus. When we come, let's not bring the leftovers of our energy, of our time, but let's bring the best, the first motivated by a heart that is compelled to worship God in Christ Jesus. And I'm not saying that you have to run around and scream. We're not going to do that here. We get it. We're not going to do it. But it would look like if your heart was full coming here because last week was dedicated to the worship of God by making him your true north on your compass and the unwavering direction of your life. And And you are ready to do the same this coming week. What if we looked at the last week and said, where where did I fall down in this week? Where can I make sure I maintain the proper direction, the true north that God has shown me through his word? 
not needing a medic when we come into this place, but ready to make plans to storm the gates of hell through making all you are about all that God is. Go to verse 6. Well, let's look at the last chunk here. 6 through 16, we'll hit on a few things here. This section, we talked about acceptable worship. Now, this section is the escalating sin that, I don't have a clock today, that that Cain finds himself in. The escalating sin of Cain. Cain's offering to God came on Cain's terms. And because of that, we can say that it was sinful. We see that God approaches Cain, and much like Adam and Eve in the garden, God questions Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Cain is then presented with a crossroads. He's presented with a place where he needs to go left or he needs to go right. God says, do well and your sacrifice will be accepted. Or do not do well and sin will rule over you. This is how God says it. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. and Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So if sin is and its desire, it's this active thing. It's not, it's not passive. It's active. It's desire. Sin's desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Lest it rule over you. Cain's sacrifice is equated with Cain's own acceptance. We talked about that a moment ago. Because how Cain offered his sacrifice, indicating what he worshipped. He worshipped himself. To bring the first and the best would have been acceptable worship to God because it would have indicated a motive that was set to worship God and not worship himself. And so we know what happens next. Sin masters Cain. It rules over Cain and he rises up and kills his brother. Why would Cain rise up and kill Abel? Because the sin escalated. Or you could say, sin leads to more sin. 1 John 3 says it like this. Again, referencing Cain. We get a bunch of these in the New Testament. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Oh, we're going to get an answer. Thank you, John. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John says that Cain murdered Abel because his deeds were evil and because his brothers were righteous. The sacrifice, the worship that Cain offered to God was evil because it came from a heart that had self at the center. Why would Cain murder Abel because of that? I think this is how this works. If you're actively living for self or someone other than God, then if you look around here on a Sunday morning or if you interact with other believers throughout the course of your week, it reveals that you're worshiping something that may not be God. And it's seen by what you most aggressively pursue in your day-to-day. It's seen in the direction that your life is aimed. Is it aimed at God or something else? And so if you're actively living for something other than God, you're going to find those who are living for God 
to be offensive. This leads to Cain murdering Abel. And that verse in 1 John about Cain's motives is written to churches. It's written to a group of churches. John, John, the Apostle John who writes that 1 John 3 verse, is not, he's not worried about, and I'm not worried about you guys killing each other. He's not worried about murder taking place in the pews of his first century house church. There are no pews. So why does it matter? Why does John even bother saying it? Because right before verse 12, John writes this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Read that together with verse 12. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was evil, who was of the evil one and who murdered his brother. It's a contrast that he wants to set up for us. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain who murdered his brother. John wants men and women to churches he's writing to to love one another. What is the threat that he sees to that love for one another? Hearts that are consumed with self or something else other than God, like Cain. So, friends, if during our week our hearts are consumed with seeking after things other than God, when we gather together as God's people, we will be offended by those who genuinely are worshiping God. You will be cynical when you see men and women praising God through song. You will grow bitter when you see people laughing together and crying together. You will become jealous when you see others using their gifts well. You will be tempted to complain about inconsequential things. You will feel a desire to tear others down rather than building them up. And you will look for someone to vent to. Do you see such and such? Did you talk to so and so? Did you hear about this? Can you believe that this or that happened? This is what went on inside of Cain and he murdered his brother. And this is the one very real way that we fail to love our brothers and sisters. If you've experienced anything that I've just described, cynicism or bitterness or anger or jealousy towards someone here. If you're always complaining or telling others how much better your way is than other people's, if you would prefer to point out someone's faults rather than acknowledge their strengths, if those things are any indication to us, it's not because we've had a bad week or because we're not feeling like ourselves. It's actually a worship problem. You aren't worshiping God. You're sinning by worshiping self or something else. So if you know that you felt one of those things, don't turn in on yourself like Cain did. If you see others genuinely worshiping God with their lives and it leads you to resent them, it's exposing your defective worship. Worshiping the empty idol of self drove Cain to murder Abel. And sin escalated into more sin. And worshiping empty idols will cause us to fail to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sin will escalate into more sin. But first we have to understand, we have to realize that worship isn't just a Sunday morning thing. It's an attitude of the heart and God sees all of it. Conclusion this morning. 
I want to suggest that for many of you here that you stand at a crossroads like Cain did. And these words in verse 7 are incredibly important. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You've been worshiping something other than God with your life. As a result, you failed to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, you absolutely have failed to love your neighbor. So you need to do some serious heart work. The crossroads is before you. Recalibrate your worship, making God the object of your worship, or sink deeper into your defective worship, causing your sin to compound on itself. This this idea, this, this notion, friends, you must understand. If you are outside of Christ, if you're in Adam, like we talked about in the past, if you're in Adam, this is the only thing that you can do. You can only grow cynical and bitter and resentful of people who are worshiping God. They might have something that you think that you want, but, but you can't have it outside of Christ. Only in Christ Jesus can our defective worship be made real into real, genuine worship. Moving away from the idol of self and self-interest and into true worship of God. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that a time is coming when men and women will worship God in spirit and in truth. Apart from this spirit of Christ dwelling inside of you, if you are in Christ, there is no worshiping God. You may believe that God exists, but even the demons believe that and they shudder. This morning, take a look at your heart. If you are in Christ, if you are genuinely in Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and He will compel you to worship God. Now that doesn't mean in times, in certain times, you won't grow bitter and resentful, and the flesh won't rise up and say, this is better than worship of God. Being frustrated is better than worshiping God and loving your brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that at all. We have these bodies and one day we'll be free from them. But right now, we recognize that we are fighting to kill the sin. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Are the words for those who are in Christ. We have the opportunity and the ability, the freedom to do well. But if you're outside of Christ, there is no opportunity for you to do well. Sin is crouching at the door and it will rule over you. After Cain murders Abel, God approached him. Cain is so hardened by sin that he snaps back at God. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to Cain, he sends him off to be a fugitive, a wanderer on the earth. But God offers Cain protection. And I want to Highlight this as we close. If you know that you've chosen something, self, something else above God, friends, God has been patient with you. He demonstrates that he was patient with Cain. And if he has been patient with you in your self-consumed worship, take a moment to think and to recalibrate your worship. If you do stand at this crossroads, I'm appealing to you through this text to recalibrate your worship off of yourself, off of worldly things, and onto God. Don't double down on your sin like Cain did. God has given you a means of escape. 
from the sin that threatens to escalate in your life. And then as a result, love your brothers and sisters. As a result, the next step, the love for brother is the thing that demonstrates that your worship is genuine. Cain murdered his brother because his sin escalated. The men and women who here who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, love them. When God is kind to them and grows them into Christ's likeness, rejoice with them. Don't be bitter or jealous. Care about their well-being as much as your own. Bind up the wounds of those who are hurting in your midst. Go out of your way to encourage others in the use of their gifts, talents, and for building of the church. The last thing that I would mention in conclusion is this. When we come to congregational worship, I think this is a vital component for us to walk out of here with, come to make much of God. If you think about a birthday party, you don't go to a birthday party to make much of yourself, unless it's your birthday party. But it's not your birthday party. That's part of the scenario. Not your birthday party. It is incredibly myopic and self-centered to go to the birthday party to make much of yourself. And yet we, as Christians, often come to church to make much of ourselves or to be thinking that we should be made much of. The, everything should be catered to me. We don't want to approach God on our terms and not on His. So those are the three things I would ask you to take away with. If you have been worshiping self or something else Run to Jesus because he has the ability to free you from that self-worship and gives you the opportunity to recalibrate your worship off of your, off of your sinful desires and onto God himself. As a result, love your brothers and sisters. The best way to do that is through recalibrated worship. And finally, when you gather together to worship God in the formal sense here on Sunday morning, do so to make much of God and on yourself. It's my prayer that we will come to God like Abel did, worshiping God on his terms, not on ours. God is God. Let's make much of him. Let's pray.